Hi everyone, this is Hita Unnikrishnan for the In Common Podcast, a show that explores the careers and research of academics and practitioners studying relationships between humans and the environment. For many scholars of environmental history, especially in South Asian contexts, it has always been a joy to listen, whether from inside jam-packed auditoriums or more recently equally crowded Zoom lectures, to stories from the past narrated by our guest of today, Professor Mahesh Rangarajan. Having been informally mentored by him through the course of my PhD and later, and having seen many, many scholars look up to his brilliant work on Indian environmental history, it was indeed, as he puts it somewhere along this interview, an absolute privilege to have this conversation, receive undivided attention, and thus be able to pick his brain. Mahesh today serves as a Vice Chancellor and Professor of History at Kriya University in India. In our conversation, we spoke about his career and what it means to be a scholar of history and how history is dynamic. We spoke about how that which is celebrated today might well be something to feel ashamed of in later years. We spoke about differences between the colonially rooted Indian educational system and teaching practices of other countries, particularly referencing the idea that a student should not be taught what to think, but rather how to think. For example, why did certain events occur when they did? What made certain dates be picked for historically significant events? We spoke about intellectual exchange and cooperation across people at different career stages. And true to Mahesh's own passion, the episode provides fascinating insights into the social, political, and culturally rooted environmental history of large and charismatic mammals, the elephant, the lion, and the tiger. The references to cultural traditions also means that we use some words in this episode that may be unfamiliar to non-Indian listeners. And while many of these are explained within the episode itself, our show notes on the pod also provide an explanation to those of you who are interested. Thank you so much for joining me today, Professor Rangarajan. It's wonderful and I'm very excited about this interview. To kick us off, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about how you describe yourself. As in, when I look at your work, you're very obviously an academic, a scholar of environmental history. But you're also someone who interfaces with policy through your newspaper columns. You work across disciplines. And while your frame of thinking is historical, there is also this interface with environmental studies and ecology. In a sense, it's a very interesting identity you have. And I was very curious as to how you would describe that identity. That's a superb question, Hitha. It's a great privilege to be with you today and a pleasure to be asked such a fine question to start with. I'm a student of history. Historians are storytellers. Uh, we tell stories. We can't make up a story because the stories are based on evidence. But our stories are not just chronologies, what happened uh, and when it happened. We try to explain why, when, how, and where. And so you're absolutely right. My work has been historical. It looks at the past, the ways the present has been shaped by the past, when there were particular turns in the road which led us to where we are today, why those turns were taken, were there various contests over which turn to take, and who would take the turn and at what time. The point from the environment is very important. I mean, I would like to think that we're trying to write a history as an ecology matter, but trying to give a frame of human history which concerns about the environment and ecology begin to take account. Because historians are storytellers, we are very much related to the social sciences, sociology, economics, literature, philology. Because we're storytellers, I tend to believe that we should try to write stories in language which is accessible, but with ideas which may be complex. So all these issues of policy, attitudes, public debate, his writers of history have at times played a role in shaping how people think, or let me put it more humbly, trying to influence our people. And the environment, certainly from the 1960s or perhaps earlier, has been a major issue of public concern. 
And uh, I think I'm part of a larger cohort of historians, much larger, older, wiser, younger, better heads than mine, who are trying to draw on the insights of history to look at a very important contemporary concern, the environment. But not just to look at the concern, but to enrich our ways of looking both at the past and the future. So I hope that sort of is it some sort of an answer. It's a very interesting way to look at it as well, because uh, the environment as such, like you said, mentioned, is kind of cutting across a lot of these, you know, divides between society, nature, culture, and so on. You mentioned you're a student of history. What did you do beyond after that, uh, that led you into developing an interest for the history of in- India's environment, uh, its wildlife, its forests? And were there some things in your experience that stood out to you that shaped who you are today? Yeah, that's again a very good question. But I was interested in wildlife and the ecology and the environment uh, long before I decided to become a historian. Part of it was uh, the particular place and time I grew up in uh, Delhi in the late 60s, uh, 70s into the 80s. Uh, was a very fine city to live in in terms of uh, the Delhi Zoo, birds, bird watching and so on. Done in a somewhat less organized and I'm sure extremely primitive way compared to now. But one of the consequences is we got involved in a lot of activity. Uh, to try and do something about it. History seemed something which was fascinating as a student. And I think, uh, to me, the involvement with the now now uh, disbanded organization called the Shahadol, interestingly set up by four engineers from the IIT, one of whom was uh, uh, Dunu Roy. And they were very interesting. We did a lot of work with them with surveys. There were safety issues in thermal power plants, pollution from a paper mill, uh, questions of uh, caustic soda factory and uh, safety of workers and so on. And one of the things uh, Dunuroy was very good at is that he suggested all of us who were students, we were volunteers. These were sort of fact findings and they were eventually to feed into the Department of Environment in some reports, uh, was that we should try and integrate our interests in the environment with our respective disciplines. And uh, it seems to me uh, by the time I finished my second BA in Oxford, it was possible to do that. Uh, partly because uh, by then Ram Guha's book was uh, about to come out, you know, The Unquiet Woods. I had read some of the papers on which it was to be based, uh, the early works. And so I got on to looking at forests and forest issues. And I'd been involved uh, uh, when uh, a student activist, uh, we had gone on Padyatras with the late uh, Sundarlal Bahuguna. Uh, so forests seemed an interesting area. Central provinces I had worked in with Dun. So the environmental interest predated history. And I think the timing, it was fortuitous. The late, late 80s, early 90s was a time when this uh, interface of environment and history was coming, beginning to happen. It happened earlier. I think it was happening in new ways. So I just happened to be at that particular time. Wow. Yeah. So Mahesh, so this kind of leads me into your trajectory beyond those initial forming years into, we know that you've been educated at Oxford. And how did you actually go and... How did that shape your thinking? Well, that was simple. I finished my BA. I had reasonably good grades. I started a master's. I applied for a scholarship. Rightly or wrong, they decided to give it to me. And I went there and I thought I'd do a second BA for which, as you know, you do it in two years, fast track, they give you an MA. Mm -hmm. And it's a very interesting BA because one of the differences, I think, with India is that in the bachelor's, you work a lot with original sources, a couple of papers, the further and special subject. So get your teeth into original material. You're not telling us what other people think. You're actually looking at the raw sort of passage of events, making sense of it. And uh, well, one of the people who taught me, he was my college tutor, he's no more, was very important in my later sort of uh, education as well, uh, Dr. Morris Keane. 
He wrote a very famous book, Outlaws of Medieval Legend. Hmm. I'm sure very few people would have read the book, but you'll all know one person who did figure in the book, Robin Hood. So one of the questions uh, Morris Keen asked is, did Robin Hood really exist? And there is no easy answer. And he was looking at the 13th century. But he said Robin Hood is based on traditions of several such men. There were several such men. And one of the very interesting uh, insights in Morris Keane's work was that Robin Hood said that he was loyal to the king. Mm-hmm. But by hunting the deer on behalf of the commoners, he was upholding a very different notion of property, a different idea of right and wrong, in whose would have access to nature or to the wealth of the land, as opposed to the aristocracy or the lords. And um, uh, Keane is not widely read today, but, uh, but, but you know, this idea that you could look at the fairly dry historical sources and come up with these very interesting stories uh, appealed to me. So I did my doctorate at Nafil College. Uh, my supervisor was in another college, very great historian of India, now no more, Professor Tapan Raichaudhri. And my thesis, as I had said, went into central provinces. And a lot of the work later turned out to be on tigers and how tigers were hunted, killed for rewards. There are all sorts of huge numbers which are which are killed, tigresses, cubs, because they're trying to eliminate the species. And Tapanda sometimes gently say that he had grown up in the early part of the 20th century in eastern Bengal, and that as a boy growing up in a rural area, he was told that the British had one great accomplishment. They had put down the Pindaris, the raiders, the thugs or the bandits, and killed the tigers, and made the countryside safe. And he said it's a measure of historical time that something which was celebrated in my generation is bemoaned in yours by people like you. So I think, you know, this, this idea of excavating the past, trying to hold it up to the light, getting a different sense of the present, uh, it, 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 it helped me to try and think in a more independent way. I'm actually enjoying this because, I mean, and as much as I've, I've been interacting with you over the years, this, is, this kind of a conversation was only possible through something like this. So uh, thank you so much for that. I was I was going back to um, something you just mentioned about the difference in academic cultures between India, Indian historical courses and those in Oxford at the time that you were doing this. And I was wondering if you could expand a little bit about that. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, very often you do hear that Indian academic systems are often inferior to those in the West and, you know, Oxford and Cambridge are the places to be. But in what you've been telling me, this access to primary historical material is something that you don't get abroad in uh, historical studies. And I was just I was just curious to hear your thoughts about that. No, no, no. There are two very distinct issues. One is the way you're taught. Uh, much of the teaching in our country, not universities like mine, mm-hmm. but uh, much of our teaching is based on rote learning. Certainly in disciplines such as history, you learn what to say. But one of the commonalities of most disciplines in most places, in most colleges, universities, and historically, we're trying to change that now, is that you are taught what to think. There is a right answer. Mm. So, you know, your question on a historical event, you know, India became independent on 15th August 1947. We know that. Unlikely to change. Why that date? Now, one answer is simple. That's the date picked by Lord Mountbatten. Now, why did he pick that date? Because two years previous to that, that was the date the Japanese surrendered to him in Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. It's a somewhat vainglorious man. He wanted his name to be in two historic dates. But what it let him pick that? There was the India Independence Act passed by the British House of Commons for support, which said India had to be independent no later than June 1948. Why was that act introduced into the parliament? Because Clement Attlee of the Labour Party 
was not committed to upholding the empire the way his predecessor, Winston Churchill, was. Buckley became prime minister at the end of the Second World War because people in the United Kingdom were happy that Churchill had won the war, but they wanted a fresh start in terms of their economy, health, and so on and so forth, and they voted for it. But the deeper reasons that if you look at the Second World War, the United Kingdom is one of the losers, not the winners. The United Kingdom entered the war to remain a powerful force in the continent of Europe, as well as to preserve its empire. By the end of the war, it was not a major player in the continent of Europe. There were two players, the US and the USSR. And the loss of the empire began in India, because in the course of fighting the war, the United Kingdom needed to draw on the resources of its empire. Now, the government of India was an, in, was an entity within the British Indian Empire. Uh, the Viceroy, Mountbatten, his predecessors, ruled over an area of 4 million square kilometers. That's larger than Julius Caesar, Alexander, and so on. Government of India became a creditor of the United Kingdom. Ah. So when India was independent, the foreign exchange reserve we had was the equivalent of 300 to 400 billion dollars today. Mm. Further, in order to fight the war, the British had to recruit Indian soldiers. Over 2 million Indians fought in the war. And by the end, they were not quite sure that these 2 million would be loyal to the empire because they had fought the war in the name of freedom. Further, during the war, 1940, there was the Quitinda War, the crushing of which was seen as a sign of the strength of the British Empire. But it was clear by the time they finished crushing that they would not be able to meet such a test ever again. Now, which of these is the most important? I've given you seven, eight reasons. That is how a historian thinks. As far as your point on primary resources is concerned, they're around us. So if you look at, say, the uh, memoirs of people who lived through this period, one of the very important memoirs is called uh, The Shade of Freedom. It is by a person who works in the refugee camps in Delhi. Her granddaughter translated it as Urdu then in Hindi. And it's a very fascinating story because she worked both with people who were fleeing to Pakistan, but also with people who were coming into Pakistan. So they were both Muslims who were moving away, Hindus and Sikhs who were coming. The most engaging part of that story is about how this woman and the other volunteers moved around without any police escort in highly violent places, conciliating or trying to conciliate. So I think many sources are around this. The difference is that one is not being penalized for what you say, provided you can back it up with reason and evidence. So we're not here to teach you what to think. But how to, that's why. So it's not Oxford Cambridge. I think the Indian education system, historically, and certainly we can go back to imperial colonial times to find out why, has tended to tell you what to think. That's one. The other, as far as sources are concerned, is that the way in which you read a source, right, is about your training. And I think broadly in this country, when we studied, I studied in an excellent university, Delhi University, in a very good college in college. I did a very good, what was, I would say at that time, a very advanced degree. It was a newly refurbished syllabus. History. But it later occurred to me that I'd learned to read up three, four different books, weigh up their evidence and say who was right. Mm. Here you were not asked who was right. They were asked, what do you think? That's a bit of a revelation. You're in your early 20s and you asked what you think about why the Second World War began in Asia and so on and so date. But you should. Why shouldn't you? At the most, you'll go wrong. So I think the confidence to think independently, but with reason and evidence is very important. And I do think there are many Indian institutions which do inculcate it. Absolutely. But I'm sure you, I can be forgiven for saying there are many countries where this is done better. We don't have to go to the West. We can look at Japan, Singapore. We can look at other instances. Absolutely. I was also going back to something else you were mentioning. I mean, while we are on the subject of how uh, academic practices evolve. One of the things that I have always treasured is the fact that I've had informal mentoring through 
various sources one of which of course is you um, and i remember how i remember hadini presenting something at the nehru memorial museum and library in delhi that was co-authored by us and you giving us some feedback on it and hadini bringing that back to me and you know we incorporating that feedback into the paper which wrote, which was obviously i mean it it really enriched what we were thinking about and then two years later when i actually met you at a conference it was actually very gratifying to see that you remembered me as a person and then of course later on you did become my external uh, for the defense and and since then you've been constantly acting as his informal mentoring uh, you've been taking on this informal mentoring role for me mm-hmm. and i'm sure that's not just me i'm sure you do this informal mentoring to a lot of lot of uh, students um, who've been passing out and i think my question really relates to the fact that while of course there are several mentors who do this take the time out to to sort of you know work with people who they've not really worked with uh, before and so on what motivates this desire for mentoring and what how what what role do you think it plays in academia in general especially in the context of our country's academic system but this uh, mentoring is a very american term i don't know what the right term i i would say <laughs> it's a intellectual exchange and cooperation absolutely and the intellectual exchange and cooperation is uh, the lifeblood of scholarship simon sharma wrote a, a very famous article called in defense of real life libraries and i think it was titled something like why the most important book in the library is next to the one you went looking for saying that when you go to the library and this is not true unfortunately web you go searching for a book you take the wrong turn and you end up in another place and wonder is a complete waste of time you find some other absolutely enchanting title you pick it up and start reading it and before you know it you've gone your mind's gone off on another trip but i think talking to people who have done their own work whether it is original scholarship whether it's review of literature whether it's an observation uh, it, it is a, a means to engage with their findings what does it say what how does the evidence speak and part of this exchange is irreplaceable you see the privilege of having that person with you and their undivided attention means you can actually pick their brain and the best way to pick their brain is to say do you really mean this could it possibly be that or to say you know i think that might be relevant and you do know that a lot of uh, the path breaking scholarship which I, i i doubt i'll ever go it and perhaps you will has come out of such exchanges you know the, the, these exchanges are the lifeblood of scholarship and some of the best exchanges have happened not inside the classroom the seminar room or the lab but just outside it could be over coffee it could be in today's world over email it could have been a letter so my sense is that this is very important and generally it can and should be said that one of the positive virtues of universities and being in educational institutions is that because you continuously meet people younger than yourself uh, they by the way over years will keep getting younger and younger you keep thinking you're getting younger yeah and firstly that's not possible of course but one of the things is not only do they bring fresh energy i do think that oh, you know when you look at younger people coming in over time they bring new perspectives and some of them are asking questions which were scarcely imaginable 5 or 10 years ago so it's always been a, a very positive event and i do think the other added thing of course is that i'm sure this applies to when made the environment is a field which excites people beyond their scholarly or disciplinary boundaries it's something they feel engaged with concerned with passionate about and uh, that does create a certain camaraderie or bonhomi which cuts across disciplines cultures i'd say ideologies yeah uh, had uh, all sorts of conversations on what to do about the indicita at least half a dozen people who with whom i can assure you i agree with them virtually nothing else we don't even agree on the cheetah but but our conversations leave me a very enriched because there are so many things that they've thought about which i am neither trained to think about 
or like you to think about. And honestly, in some cases, not capable of. But that engagement is around a problem, a problematic a question. And by doing that, we come up with new questions and problematics. Most of the time, they will remain unsystematic. They won't be rigorously developed. But that's okay. I mean, that's part of the game. So we're always searching for what one of my friends called an intellectual soulmate. Soulmate in the sense, not soulmate, whatever you call mind, you know, someone who is in that same template. And what better place than someone who's written up a seminar paper? They reply to you and engage with you even better. Yeah, yeah. Circling back to this question of environmental history, you've worked a lot on India's wildlife and forest history and related a lot of that to India's contemporary challenges as well. And when we think of history, we think of moments in time that have shaped uh, uh, spaces. Drawing on some of your work, what would you say are some of the key moments that have shaped India's environmental regimes from the past and what their influence is on, on today? It depends how, how far you want to go into the past. J- James Baldwin said that the past is not even the past, referring, of course, to the long-term impact of slavery and race and uh, discrimination in the American one of the interesting things I've found is that uh, the two authors have written very fat books. One is called Elephants and Kings by Thomas Stockport, and the other is called The Retreat of Elephants by Mark Elvin. The Mark Elvin book is fat. If you want to throw a book at someone, which I don't advise, uh, it would be the Elvin book because it's a, it claims to be a thousand-year history of China, but it's actually a four-thousand-year history of China. He summed up in one line. He argued that the spread of Han Chinese civilization or the invention of the notion of Han Chinese was based on the culture of rice. And their rice cultivation and elephants did not mix. So where they met elephants, they killed them. They th- the major role of elephants was as a barrier to the growth of cultivation and civilization over centuries. The fascinating map in which he shows large parts of contemporary China had some elephants, not lots. Troutman is a completely different art. And uh, he shows from around, uh, well-known, uh, 6th century BCE, 2,600 years ago, India, South Asia is one of the first places in the world where elephants were captured, trained, and ten, and they began to be deployed in war. And so by 2300 years, you start having elephant forests known as the Hastamal. Trotman is a great translator of the Arthashastra. He wrote a famous book, Elephants and Mauryas, arguing that elephant forests were important in strategic terms. The elephant was vital for the war machine. And the role of the war elephant, the in- unintended consequences of the war elephant, was that it made the king an ally of the elephant and its forest form. It's not protection for its own sake, but protection for the war machine. In order to trap these elephants, they had to form alliances very unequal ones, with forest peoples and tribes who trapped, trained, and procured the elephants. And at the same time, they had to, at times, try and protect the cultivators who were having crops ravaged by the elephants. And Trotman's argument is that the war elephant is a result of a very important societal innovation of these four dimensions, the forest, the elephant, the forest peoples, and the king. And this particular model or approach, which began in India, was then modified, adapted, transplanted, implanted across Southeast Asia, right to West Asia. There's a particular war which may interest you where the Asian elephants fought against the African elephants in Egypt. Wow. Uh, according to Sculler, the historian of the classical world, the Asians won. But please note that the African elephants were African forest elephants, and probably smaller. Uh, and silly aside, but elephants, of course, vanished in the succeeding centuries in this entire event. And uh, even as late as 1911, Gazette says, there were elephants in Ajmer and Rasta where they're not found. But in Southeast Asia, the great cultures of Indochina, Thailand, uh, India, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, the elephant was very important. The war elephant never de- was never deployed in China. So here you see a deep history with unintended consequences. And by the way, elephants continue to be deployed in warfare till as late as 1940. Our friend Mountbatten commanded these legions of armies 
Navy's Air Force in Southeast Asia. He also had under his command, believe it or not, 3,000 elephants captured in the jungles of India and Burma and deployed in the world. And elephants would also be used by the Viet Minh, who were called by the Americans the Viet Cong in the war in Vietnam. So much so that the US Air Force had standing orders that if they saw elephants in jungles, they were to assume that these were enemy combatants in or out of uniform and they were to bomb and kill them. So I think this is a very interesting case where such a large animal, one of the largest land animals, the largest numbers, as you know, are now in India. It's extinct in many countries. Uh, China has very few. But one of the consequences is that because this long history of taming is there, the elephant in South and Southeast Asian cultures is more than an animal. In fact, in some senses, it is not, not even an animal. So I'll give you a very interesting instance, which many South Southeast Asian readers will understand. There is a very important scene in the Valmiki Ramayana where, you know, Rama in the forest is told about the death of his great father, Dashrath. And it says that Ram fell down, the way the mother elephant falls when she sees the death of a cow. Fascinating inversion, because this is the son hearing the death of the father. Hmm. Similarly, when he hears about the Aparat, that is the kidnapping of Sita, mm-hmm. he is supposed to have been struck with grief, the way the mother elephant is at the illness of the cow. So I think, you know, the elephant in terms of affect has an enormous significance. I would argue unmatched by any large animal, certainly in South Asian countries, Bhutan, Nepal, Bangladesh, India, Burma, and you can go east. And a lot of this is to do with the fact that it is possible if a child has seen a large animal in her youth, it's an elephant. It is possible that it is one of the first animals that they have learned to draw. And it is an animal which has associations with religions and cultures, which at times are mind-boggling. I mean, there are associations with a range of cultures and religions. So when we look at the survival of the elephant, this does not mean that because of this history, people will save elephants. I'm not saying that at all. Mm -hmm. But certainly, it will explain why uh, the elephant in popular culture, look at Bombay cinema, for example, very famous picture, Hathi Mere Sati, in which the actor Rajesh Khanna rumored to have said, I'm sure he didn't say it, it's not any of his biographies, that after this he would act with actors and actresses, but definitely not with an animal, because those who know the film will know that the elephant Ramu, who is so loyal to this uh, very fine hero, saves his life by jumping in front of him and a bullet. Now, how he managed that can only happen in a film. But, but I think that, you know, somewhere you can't think of any other large wild animal playing that role. So in that sense, M. Krishnan was quite right when he said that the elephant, more than the tiger, had a right to be called the National Animal of India. So in 2010, it became National Heritage Animal of India. But you know, that was almost 30 years late. Yeah, Hati Mere Sati just brought in a whole host of memories because I'm a little bit of a wuss when it comes to animals dying in movies. (laughs) So I watched it once, I loved the movie, but then I've never watched it again just because the animal dies. uh, you know, just the story that you told us about how the elephant sort of occupies such a central role. And in a sense, it could be one of the driving forces that have enabled this huge land mammal to survive. It made me relate this story to this whole paradigm of when we talk about environmental conservation, conserving the commons, conserving, you know, any any anything resource related. And there's this constant debate that is going on about how you need to conserve something for its own value versus the fact that very often conserving things becomes a success usually when there is some kind of use or association or you know some kind of a something that that relates it to human civilization and culture and I was just wondering what your thoughts are on 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 that debate as a whole very difficult you know one needs to be specific in time purpose and time and place mm-hmm. very striking that uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, when large rewards were given for killing of tigers, or very good, very accomplished 
sportsman naturalists like J.W. Best, Philip Hewitt, recorded that there were Gujars in UP, uh, United Provinces, now Uttar Pradesh, who said there was no need to kill tigers. They only took a few sick calves. Mm. As long as there was a good group of domestic buffaloes, they could stand their ground. They had no, no real war with the tiger. They are peoples you would expect to be at war with the tiger. The other is the to go 50 years backward in time, G.P. Sanderson, one of the very important naturalists, certainly in southern India. And, you know, the, the, these are men one can't really sympathize with. They were racist, they were imperialist. They were very much part of the war machine, the, the forest department machine. They set it up. Sanderson organized great kedas in which elephants were rounded up, often in pretty cruel ways. But Sanderson has written about a tiger which lived near a group of villages. And nobody there ever had the slightest interest in killing. And uh, he paraphrases what the villagers said, that uh, not only is this tiger not harmful, but that it is entitled to present a bill for its services in holding down the deer and the hogs. But then there's the reverse also. You know, the great Niraj Si Chaudhary uh, wrote uh, his memoirs, Autobiography of Unknown India. And he talks about how in Eastern Bengal, people of different faiths, students, boys, there were no girls in class, they sat at a distance from each other. They drank water from different pots. Mm-hmm. This was also true of caste folks. However, if they had to go through this particular forest, every one of them went and prayed to the Bondi, the goddess of the forest, because she had powers over the tigers. So it was believed that if you prayed to her, she will tell the tigers not to harm. Now the reverse is if you didn't pray to her, the chance of being harmed are greater. So my, my sense is that relationships are complicated. Or the same animal in this case, which may harm your cattle, may hold down the deer. It may hunt you down in a dark forest night, but it may simply pass by without harming you. So these are very complex uh, issues and one should be careful about the idea of one size fits all. It's difficult, for instance, to see, I'm straying with large animals, I'm a little familiar with them, the lions of the Gir forest, having survived the early 20th century without the protection of rulers, particularly Junagar, but also to a lesser extent, I would say Bhavnagar and Baroda. And in independent India of the uh, Saurashtra uh, uh, local government and then the Gujarat state government. And then, of course, there's the union government. Because the reality is that one of the great threats to the land was the expansion of agriculture. And the valley floors uh, are prime agricultural land. The other is that while it is true that the Maldharis who live within Gir Forest have a variety of living ways of living with the lions, it's also true that at certain times the conflicts between them or their cattle and lions have been very sharp. So late 1960s, there was a surge in killings of lions, particularly by poisoning kilns. And it's only because of fairly strong interventions that part of the forest saw its vegetation recover, the wild prey numbers build up, and lions within the reserve shift from largely a cattle diet to a diet of wild herbivores. It's not a complete shift. So I think there are different scales and levels. And as a student of history, I'm not speaking as a citizen, I'm very hesitant to say this or that. It's not a question of grace. It's just that the past cannot tell us what choice to do. The choice is today. It's not about guests. You can't bring back the past. There's no point idealizing, romanticizing, or simply belaboring. The past is important because it gives us a sense of the consequences of the choices. There are intended consequences, and there are unintended consequences. So these Nawabs and Maharajas did know that there were no lions left in Asia. The major reason they were protecting the lions is so that they and their best friends and some of their British overlords and masters could shoot lions. So lions survived as a political card. The unintended effect is they protected the forest. A forest, of course, has enormous Gir is the largest national forest uh, area in the entire Saurashtra. It's phenomenally important for water sources. It's got a wealth of plant and animal birds. And today it also has a somewhat semi-nomadic lifestyle, not nomadic, of the Maldives. 
which deserves to be studied on its own. How do our people live within a forest and turn out such excellent butter and ghee and now milk with such high fat content, with their own very remarkable breeds of, of buffalo? So the buffalo of the Gir forest, the domestic, deserves as much study as these enormous lions. So it's a measure of elite, princely, middle-class sentiment that the fascination we have for the lion, which I share, is not extended to the Jafrabadi buffalo. And I might add to the Gir cow, which is a fascinating animal. These are, of course, result of human breeding over centuries. Yeah. That's not an answer to your question. I, th I, I think there are different forms, different approaches, different ways, each of which has its own relevance. I was also reading up your work earlier about how the behavioral patterns of animals have evolved in response to the human interactions that they face. Uh, I think it was a lion that was yeah. being described in that as well. Could you say a bit about that? Yeah. So I think the, the lions of Gira are very, very significant. It's the largest metapopulation of terrestrial big cats in Asia. The recent census gives figures of six to 700. And what is remarkable is that they range over an area of over 20,000 square kilometers. Only 2,000 square kilometers of which is part in Sanchi. If you go to the YouTube, it's quite remarkable. You'll see nomad lions. You'll see lions walking on a street. You'll see a lion chased by a man and his dog from his courtyard. Um, and one of the questions think as a student of history is, how do you explain this? And I must confess this paper written by quite some years ago, the evidence I had was very limited. Uh, the, the, one of the few people who'd hunted lions and later observed them and filmed them was the great Dharam Kumars, Yuvraj of Bhavnagar, uh, educated in England, an outstanding ornithologist. Yuvraj is prince for our listeners. Yeah, he was the prince who doesn't take the throne. He's the younger one. And uh, Dharam Kumar Singh was from Bhavnagar. Uh, princely India had vanished by the time but he was a very uh, accomplished naturalist. He wrote a remarkable book on the birds of Gujarat, which he privately published. And he pointed out that in the late 50s, the behavior of the lions underwent change. Prior to that, they were shy because they were hunted occasionally. And uh, by the 1970s, the complaint was the opposite, that the lions, at least some of them within the Gil forest uh, in Sasa, were very easy to view. Uh, the great journalist Saeed Nakhri was told that he should get ready quickly in the forest rest house because he had an appointment with a lion at 7 p.m. And he was to write a delightful column saying, how could you have an appointment with a lion, not in a circus or a zoo, but in a, in a forest? The answer, which some people might find upsetting, is that a small billy goat had been kept ready and they kept tinkling its bell. And this lion would not come and take the goat. It would sit and keep waiting, knowing the goat will be released later. So I think there's a transformation. You know, as a student of history, if you go back in time, 1899-1900, there's a very great uh, drought uh, in the Vikram Sambhat calendar which is dated from the ascension, it is said, of Chandragupta Vikramat. Uh, it is the year 2054 and uh, uh, 2056. And 56 in Hindi and Gujarati is Chhapan. Chhapan. Mm. So Chhapanio Akar, the drought and famine of 56. And uh, this is a very interesting period. There are rain failures for two years. This is a spate of human eating by lions. A lot of people are eaten by lions. And uh, after this, this stops. The next phase of Lions attacking people is in 899, which my colleague, co-author, co-editor Vasan Sabawal studied, and he gave a whole lot of reasons. And uh, one of the fascinating things is that the changing behavior, behavior of the lions is evident over generations of lions. It's not that they never harm people, but it hardly ever happens. Those are two exceptions, the drought years, 99, 1901, 899. So animals do change their behavior. There's a remarkable new book by Bachibad. Dukin won a major award, American Historical Association, uh, called The Floating Coast. It's a multi-species history of the Bering Strait. And it explains that at a certain time, when steamships came and started hunting whales, whales several kilometers away, once they heard the steam, 
dive deep. Hmm. Chicago's the Wayne's head agency. They learned in some years that this teamship is coming to hunt us. Now we can't interview the Wayne's. We treat the evidence. So I think for a student of history, it's very interesting. How do you read this evidence? And one of the things you then need to do is to start taking some of the contemporary works on animal behavior much more seriously. Uh, animals uh, as emotional actors, animals uh, as knowledge transmitters to each other, the question of whether there can be knowledge transmission across generations, and whether there is an interface between the human and the animal. See, we're used to making a sharp line. The sharp line doesn't exist in real life, as tragically the Spanish flu showed us and COVID-19 has shown us. Uh, this is somewhat... Uh, uh, what is the right word, macabre issue to raise at this time. Uh, but there are other much more pleasant ways, as in the people living in uh, close proximity to these very great uh, carnivores. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting that you bring up disease histories because something that I'm actually looking at currently is the disease history around cholera, more specifically in the con- context of Sir Ronald Ross's experiences with cholera. And I, I, was, also, I was also looking at histories of how cholera was seen as a a native disease originated in the Gadgetic Delta and so on. And it was also interesting to hear Bon Bibi's name that you mentioned earlier, because Bon Bibi was this deity that Bengalis worshipped even for protection against cholera. So in a sense, it it was like how, you know, contemporary issues are sort of giving deities additional powers and I just found that fascinating because even in Bangalore for example you have I remember going around this area called Miller's Tank in the center of the city and seeing something called a plague Mariamma temple and these cultural associations that come about because of associations with history and and disease and you know people's experiences may be not access being able to access healthcare therefore resorting to divine intervention or seeing it as a additional support to get cured from a disease. I was just, yeah, I was wondering if you've any thoughts on something like that? Well, you know, the 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 Sitala de vis-a-vis smallpox has been studied quite extensively by scholars like David Arp. And uh, uh, definitely uh, uh, they, the, this kind of healing had certainly a role in building some level of self-confidence and assurance, which as we all know is important in times of uh, great suffering and panic. Um, and in a sense, praying to the Bon Bibi vis-a-vis cholera, hazard, or vis-a-vis the Vaal, the tiger, are somewhat similar. These are uncontrollable forces. And you may, as a scientist, study how a virus spreads, uh, how carnivores do or do not behave. But there may be other ways of explaining the behavior of the carnivore or the impact or the consequences of the virus. And historically, cultural and religious explanations have been very important. Um, and you're absolutely right. And I do think that there's a lot of work on popular religion and culture, uh, which has been done, which is about disease. We tend to forget that pandemics and epidemics have been there through human history, and they have sometimes played a much larger role in reshaping human lives than uh, we tend to admit. Uh, so the bubonic plague, uh, several waves, along with the so-called Spanish flu, claimed a number of lives uh, in India around the time of the end of the Great War. And the bubonic plague came in waves uh, from around uh, the late 1890s, right up to 1918. And it killed a lot of people. And to go back to our animal conversation, not what you were raising, one of the very rare cases where a leopard is the subject of an entire book by Jim Cobbett was the man-eating leopard of Rudrapaya. And Cobbett hypothesizes at the commencement that this leopard developed a taste for human flesh because in the influenza epidemic, people who were too poor to cremate the dead, put a piece of coal and threw the body into the river. There's a lot of deaths and there had to be a ritual 
farewell uh, for the welfare of the soul of the department. But in the process, the leopard uh, developed this taste for human flesh. Now, Cobbett had no way of verifying this. It's a hypothesis. But it does raise the question that at the end of a period of mass deaths due to an epidemic, is it possible that carnivores, uh, I don't know if taste for human flesh is the right word, develop a greater propensity to view humans, not as creatures to be avoided, but to be hunted. So the humans who were prey to the virus and its after who died, paved the way for the living human to be treated as prey, meat on two legs rather than meat on the hoof for the predator. Oh, it's a very chilling thought, but that's what Corbett was saying. And I mean, I, to me, I think that's one of the most fascinating uh, uh, sections of Corbett. It's barely sort of one and a half pages. If you really write, you know, some historian needs to rework and find out how through this. Was. I don't know. Well, I was also thinking back to the conversation we had a little earlier about how people, you know, had no interest in hunting, for example, and so on hunting the tiger at some point and I was reminded of some of the archival records that I've been seeing in Bangalore about how initially there were rewards offered for the killing of bears, foxes, snakes and each of those was categorized into I mean how how severe they thought the threat was and the reward was proportionate to that and I remember reading somewhere something about how people would go and claim that they had killed a bear or whatever and offer some clause or yes. something as proof that they had they had done so which which to the british was not enough proof that the animal had actually died mm. or they would just take the molted skin of the snake and and give it up for reward and i was just thinking about how human behavior also sort of evolves in in response to some of these regulations so to speak that the state makes around about around taming and controlling wildlife and i was wondering what your thoughts were or whether you had some stories to share about something like that no absolutely the 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 uh, measures to control dangerous beasts and poisonous snakes uh, predate the 1870s but from the 1870s to 1920s, there's regular information collected of this at the level of the government of India. And several records of these various provinces, including princely states like Mysore, uh, some of them were collated with selections. Absolutely, you know, the, to me, the, the, the wolf killing is very interesting because there were rewards for the wolf cups. And it was very difficult for some of the tahsildars and even senior officers to make out the difference between a wolf cup and a jackal cup. So sometimes the jackal cubs were presented and the reward for the wolf cup was clear. Yes, absolutely. We should be clear that a lot of this killing for bounties was done by Indians. Mm. There were some who thought it's, it's a source of cash. Others who refused to do it. Still others who profited. I haven't seen the record, but Kailash Sankla, who did study them for his book, Tiger, published in 1978, said that in one district of Assam, people presented the head of the tiger in one district and the tail in the neighboring district. So here they were, in a sense, sort of gaming the system to use today's guys. Not very good for the tiger either way, but at least, you know, someone got two meals in place of one. These rewards are very large. I mean, you know, reward for a tiger, 10 rupees in 1870s is a lot of money. I, I imagine in 1870s, for one rupee, you get, I don't know, several sayers of rice and at least two, several mounds of ghee. Yeah, these are local measures uh, of rice and ghee, uh, clarified butter. So... We're kind of approaching the end of this recording. I just have a couple more questions for you, Mahesh. One, I mean, we've been talking, I think, for this almost this entire hour about how history sort of transcends disciplinary divides and how, you know, studying things through a historical lens can shed light on the consequences of choices that have been made in the past. And really, to my mind, as concluding thoughts, what would you say about about this exact 
nature of history that transcends these disciplinary divides to say someone who is an upcoming scholar of of scholar or practitioner of of this interface between uh, the past and the present well i'll stick to the area i know best i think that you know the the, the history of 20th century a lot of studies were of war and peace how do you end wars secure the peace and that will continue uh, but uh, one of the critical dimensions of is how do you secure peace with nature and how do you secure peace that endures across generations so does that mean we have peace across species or does that mean we think of peace as if nature mattered different people define nature in very different ways uh, different people may define peace and war in different ways but whichever way we define it to keep our surroundings wherever we are to keep our neighborhood our country safe wherever we are to keep the environment habitable productive say needs to engage with the larger dialogue of keeping the planet safe habitable and productive uh, this is a very large dialogue it will call for ingenuity and cooperation across people of different cultures societies nations states i don't think historians have a magic talisman but i think we can help perhaps shed some light on how to think about this so this this undergirding of the peace among people with the peace with nature how is it going to work that to me would be one of the great questions of our still young century and still young millennium absolutely absolutely before we close the recording uh, mahesh i would just wanted to ask you if there is anything else that you'd like to speak about that we've not touched upon in this recording no no thank you for asked very thought provoking questions i have tried to wrestle and grapple with them and i i hope i have come out on my feet thank you <laughs> of course it's always a pleasure listening to you thank you so much professor angarajan for joining me today thank you for listening everyone you can find more episodes as well as a blog on the website incommonpodcast.org incommon is the official podcast of the international association for the study of the commons